This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, April 19th, 2019, episode 71, concerning Stained Glass and Notre Dame. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. This is a special episode in response to current events. Uh, in fact, I'm recording during a thunderstorm, which you may or may not end up being able to hear, uh, but I didn't want to delay getting this episode out. Listeners right now in April 2019 probably have a pretty good idea of what's prompting this off-schedule episode. For those listening to this in the future, this week, uh, this Monday, is when Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris experienced a devastating fire. As I record this, I'm getting the sense that maybe we're starting to feel that it was less devastating than initially feared, uh, but no doubt that's also partly just the relief we're feeling that the loss wasn't as complete as seemed very possible uh, as the images of the fire raging across the roof streamed over social media on Monday. And I feel like we're in a weird emotional space right now, uh, and by we, I mean medievalists and other medievally-minded people. Uh, Monday witnessed almost pure expressions of shock and despair and grief, though by Monday night, or night as perceived stateside, uh, there were more and more philosophical responses coming out, sort of cycle-of-life kind of sentiments and comments on how rebuilding and recovery from damage has always been part of the history of medieval structures. And then by Tuesday morning, when the list of features of the cathedral that survived the fire seemed longer than I think many of us were expecting, the philosophical approach uh, rapidly began to outweigh the expression of grief, or it seemed that way. I'll admit, uh, my own experience of Monday was pulled between two moods. When I first saw the headline, I kind of assumed that this was a quote-unquote bad thing, uh, but that like other fires in historic buildings, it would probably damage a small section and then be controlled. So to see the fire continuing to grow with no sign of containment, I certainly experienced a kind of horror and I suppose a vicarious helplessness. And I should say that I'm sure the firefighters were hard at work and were controlling the fire uh, to some extent, probably even a great extent, um, but their efforts weren't immediately visible to us as we watched the whole roof burn. So I had a visceral, emotional reaction. But it wasn't a very personal one. Uh, I don't have any particular emotional investment in Notre Dame as a place. Uh, I've never been there. Uh, it's not a building I've studied I'll even confess that there's probably a touch of hipster snobbery in me that has ignored Notre Dame precisely because it's so iconic and popular, uh, so that it almost feels touristy and passé. Uh, I think I can say that after processing others' reactions on Monday, uh, and my own, I don't see the cathedral that way anymore. Um, this experience has changed it from uh, this monolithic thing to something vulnerable. Anyway, I felt great horror at the fire in a historic structure, but I didn't feel much specific grief for Notre Dame as a symbol, so my horror was already being matched by my own philosophical response. I tweeted this on Tuesday, uh, but witnessing the fire made me think of the account of the Great Fire of 1091, uh, narrated in Ingolf's Chronicle of Crowland Abbey, uh, which appears in episode 5 of this show. 
uh, and which I still think is one of the best texts we've had. I mentioned in the commentary on that text that while it's hard to believe that such a vivid first-person account could be, as some maintain, a forgery from at least a couple of centuries later, it's also true that these kinds of catastrophic church fires are regular features of monastic histories, and that a later writer might well be able to describe one out of some personal experience of their own. It wasn't necessarily a rare thing to happen. And as readers of medieval texts, we can take our own emotional pain at watching Notre Dame burn and let it be a path for us to imagine and empathize with the similar emotional experience a great number of medieval people also endured. On Monday, Twitter user Mercy M. Everin, and I hope I said that mostly right, uh, asked me if I were going to perhaps put out an episode that would honor Notre Dame. And indeed, I'd already been thinking about how to acknowledge this event. Everything I thought of on Monday seemed crass amid the outpourings of grief. But already, just a couple of days later, the mood has shifted so much it already feels wide open. I was nervous about what to do, uh, partly because I struggled to find any suitable medieval texts on Notre Dame that were accessible. As near as I can tell, there is no great medieval account of its construction. You could pull lots of little snippets out of different chronicles, but those don't really add up to much. There are lots of individual incidents that happen in and around Notre Dame, but I didn't find anything in the time I had uh, that was sufficiently about Notre Dame. So I didn't find a medieval text that I thought would serve to honor Notre Dame per se, uh, but when that request was made, it seemed to be in the spirit of needing to make a little monument to a great loss. But now that the loss seems to me more of a serious wound rather than a death, at least a little bit of the weight of commemorative responsibility has lifted. Uh, though I should acknowledge here that, again, at the time of recording, there's a relative optimism, um, but the structure of the building is not out of the woods yet, and, knock on wood, Hopefully nothing further disastrous happens. Anyway, I will honor Notre Dame with a text of effusive praise, but it's not a medieval text, and we'll get to it later. My selection of a medieval text is one that is not very emotional, uh, but is nicely positioned to help us look both forward and back. This is an instructional text on how to make stained glass by an early 12th century author writing under the name Theophilus Presbyter. This author produced a text called De Diversis Artibus, or On Diverse Arts, which contains three books, one focusing on painting and illustration, one on stained glass, and one on metalwork and goldsmithing. And there are a few other arts that are touched on within these larger categories, including organ making, uh, which might be something I'll have to come back to in a future episode. This is an eminently practical text. We usually complain about how so many medieval texts lack specific detail. That's not a problem here, uh, or at least it's less of a problem. Uh, I've never made or blown glass, and I'm sure there are details left out here that a real glassmaker would be frustrated by. I expect it's a lot like the cooking and medical recipes we have uh, that contain a lot of information, but remain frustratingly vague about things like precise amounts or times for certain processes. But still, I think you read Theophilus and at least walk away with the illusion that you could actually go out and follow his instructions and make something. 
So I thought we might hear Theophilus teach us how to make stained glass windows, both as a way of thinking back to the labor of the medieval artisans who made the windows of Notre Dame, or at least now the rose windows, and as a way of thinking ahead to the restoration work that lies ahead and which undoubtedly will be making use of these kinds of sources in that work. So we'll start with the preface to book two on glassworking, and then dip into some selected chapters. I don't usually like to skip around much, but some of this is very dry and technical material, uh, so I'm going to jump to the passages that are most relevant to how we as viewers experience stained glass. Uh, so sorry, I am skipping all the stuff about how to construct the different kinds of furnaces you'll need. I'll be reading from an 1847 translation by Robert Hendry. Preface to the Second Book In the preceding book, dearest brother, through a disposition of sincere affection, I have not hesitated to convey to your virtuous disposition how much honor and perfection there is in avoiding indolence, and in contemning ignorance and sloth, and how sweet and agreeable it is to indulge in the exercise of diverse usefulness after the word of a certain author who says, To know anything is praiseworthy, it is a fault to be unwilling to learn. Nor let anyone be slow to understand him concerning whom Solomon has said, He that increaseth knowledge increaseth labor, because whoever carefully meditates may mark what perfection of mind and body may result from it. For it is evident, clearer than the light, because whoever gives his mind to sloth and levity also indulges in vain trifles and slander, curiosity, drinking, orgies, quarrel, fight, homicide, excess, thefts, sacrileges, perjury, and other things of this kind, which are repugnant in the eyes of God, overlooking the humble and quiet man, working in silence in the name of the Lord, and obedient to the precept of the holy apostle Paul. But rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. I, desiring to be the imitator of this man, have approached the porch of Holy Sophia and beheld the chancel filled with every variety of diverse colors and showing forth the nature and utility of each, from which, having forthwith entered with unwatched footstep, I filled up the storehouse of my heart fully, out of all, which I have set forth with clearness, having, by careful experiment, thoroughly examined one by one for your study all these things sufficiently approved by the eye and hands without jealousy. But since the practice of this kind of embellishment cannot be of quick apprehension, like a diligent inquirer, I have greatly labored to inform myself by all methods what invention of art and variety of color may beautify a structure and not repel the light of day and the rays of the sun. Applying myself to this exercise, I comprise the nature of glass, and I consider that this can be effected by the use and variety of it alone. This art, as seen and reported, I have learned, I have labored for your observance to fathom. Chapter 4 Of the Mixture of Ashes and Sand These being thus arranged, take beechwood logs, completely dried in the smoke, and light a large fire in the larger furnace on both sides. Then taking two parts of the ashes, of which we have before spoken, and a third part of sand, carefully purged of earth and from the stones which you may have brought from the water, 
mix them in a clean place. When they have been long and well mixed together, taking them up with the iron trowel, placing them in the smaller part of the furnace upon the upper hearth so that they may be heated. And when they have begun to grow hot, immediately stir them with the same trowel that they may not liquefy and be formed into a mass by the heat of the fire. And do this for the space of one night and day. Chapter 5 Of the Work Vases and of Heating White Glass During which time take white clay, of which jars are made, and drying it, grind it carefully, and pouring water upon it, beat it strongly with a piece of wood, and make your vases, which must be large at the top, but small below, having a small lip round the mouth, curved inwardly. When they are dry, take them with the pincers, placing them in the opening of the glowing furnace adapted for this, and with the trowel taking up the heated ashes mixed with sand, fill all the vases in the evening, and supply dry wood during the whole night, that the glass from the ashes and sand, being fully liquefied, may be cooked. Chapter 6. How Glass Tablets Are Made In the morning, however, at the first hour, take the iron tube, and if you wish to make plates of glass, place the end of it in a vase full of glass. When it has adhered to it, turn this tube round in your hand until as much as you may wish has accumulated around it. Then, withdrawing it, bring it to your mouth and blow slightly, and instantly removing it from the mouth, hold it near your cheek, unless, in drawing breath, you may by chance attract the flame into your mouth. Have also a flat stone before the window upon which you beat this glowing glass a little, that it may hang equally on every side, immediately and with quickness, repeatedly blowing so often you remove it from the mouth. When you see it look like a long bladder, bring the end of it toward the flame, and being instantly melted, an opening will appear. And the piece of wood fitted for this work being taken, make the opening as wide as is the glass in the middle. Then join its mouth together, namely the upper to the lower part, so that on both sides of the junction an opening may appear. Instantly touch this glass near the tube with a moist piece of wood, shake it a little, and it will be separated. Presently also heat the tube in the flame of the furnace until the glass attached to it liquefy, and with rapidity place it upon the two conjoined borders of glass and it will adhere. Directly taking this up, put it into the flame of the furnace until the opening, whence you formally separated the tube, is liquefied, and the round piece of wood being taken, dilate it as the other, and folding together its mouth in the middle and separating it from the pipe with the moist wood, give it to the boy, who, introducing a piece of wood through the opening, will carry it to the cooling oven, which is made moderately warm. This kind of glass is pure and white. In the same manner and at the same time, Make similar pieces of glass until you exhaust the vases. Chapter 7. Of Yellow Glass But if you see any vase changed into a yellow color, allow it to heat until the third hour, and you will have a light yellow, and work from it as much as you wish in the above-mentioned order. If, however, you choose to allow it to be heated until the sixth hour, you will have a reddish yellow. Make also from it what you please. Chapter 8 of purple glass. If you perceive that, by chance, any vase change itself into a tawny color, which is like flesh, keep this glass for flesh tints, and taking from it as much as you want, heat the rest for two hours, namely from the first until the third, and you will have a light purple, and again heated from the third until the sixth, it will be a red purple and perfect. Chapter 9 
of dilating the plates of glass. When you have made as much as you have been able from these colors and the glass has become cold in the furnace, place out all your work and cause a large fire to be lighted in the furnace in which it should be dilated and made flat. When glowing, take a hot iron and separating a part of the glass, place it upon the hearth of the glowing furnace and when it has begun to grow soft, take the iron forceps and smooth piece of wood and opening it in that part in which is the division, you will dilate and smooth it according to your will with the pincers. When it has become quite smooth, immediately taking it out, place it in the cooling oven, moderately warmed, so that the plate may not lie down, but stand against the wall, next to which you will place another, also flattened in the same manner, and a third, also all the rest. When these have become cold, use them in composing windows, by separating them into pieces as you wish. Chapter 17 of composing windows. When you wish to compose glass windows, first make for yourself a flat wooden table of such breadth and length that you can work upon it two portions of the same window, and taking chalk and scraping it with a knife over all the table, sprinkle water everywhere and rub it with a cloth over the hole. And when it is dry, take the dimensions of one portion of the window in length and breadth, marking it upon the table with rule and compass with the lead or tin. And if you wish to have a border in it, portray it with the breadth which may please you and in the pattern you may wish. Which done, draw out whatever figures you will, first with the lead or tin, then with a red or black color, making all outlines with study because it will be necessary when you have painted the glass that you join together the shadows and light according to the drawing on the table. Then, arranging the different tints of draperies, note down the color of each one in its place and of any other thing which you may wish to paint, you will mark the color with a letter. After this, take a leaden cup and put chalk ground with water into it. Make two or three brushes for yourself from hair, either from the tail of the marten or badger or squirrel or cat or the mane of an ass, and take a piece of glass of whatever kind you like, which is in every way larger than the place upon which it is superposed, and fixing it in the ground of this place so that you can perceive the drawing upon the table through the glass, so portray with the chalk the outlines upon the glass. And if the glass should be so thick that you cannot perceive the lines which are upon the table, taking white glass, draw upon it, and when it is dry, place the thick glass upon the white, raising it against the light, and as you look through it, so portray it. In the same manner you will mark out all kinds of glass, whether for the face, or in draperies, in hands, in feet, in the border, or in whatever place you intend to place colors. Chapter 18 of Dividing Glass Afterwards, heat in the fire the dividing iron, which should be thin throughout, but thicker at the end. When it glows in the thick part, apply it to the glass which you wish to divide and presently the commencement of a small fissure will appear. If, however, the glass be hard, wet it with saliva, with your finger, in the spot where you place the iron. Being instantly cracked, draw the iron along where you wish to divide, and it is followed by the fissure. All the portions being thus divided, take the rizzle iron, which is a palm in length, curved at each extremity, with which you will equalize and join all parts together, each one in its place. Chapter 21 of the Embellishment of a Picture in Glass 
there is likewise a certain ornamenting upon glass, namely in garments, in seats, and in grounds, in sapphire, green, white, and light purple color. When you have made the first shadows and drapery of this kind, and they have become dry, cover whatever of the glass is left with a light color, which must not be so dark as the second shadow, nor so light as the third, but the mean between these. Which, being dry, with the reverse of the brush, make next the first shadows which you made, fine lines on each side, so that, between these tints and the shadows, fine lines of that light color may exist. But upon the remainder, make circles and branches, and upon them flowers and leaves, in the same manner as they are made in painted letters. But upon grounds which are filled with letters and colors, you should paint upon the glass with the most delicate small branches. You can also sometimes insert in the same circles small animals and little birds, small insects and nude figures. In the same manner you make grounds of the clearest white, the figures of which grounds you ornament with sapphire, green, purple, and red. Also, in grounds of blue and green color, painted over in the same manner, and of red not painted, you make draperies of the clearest white, than which kind of garment none is more beautiful. From the above-named three colors, you paint boughs and leaves in borders, flowers and in intricacies, in the above order, and you will use the same color in the faces of figures and in the hands and feet and everywhere in the nude members, for that color which in the preceding book is called Posk. You will not make much use of yellow glass in draperies, unless in crowns and in those places where gold is placed in a painting. All these things being thus composed and painted, the glass is to be heated and the color fixed in the furnace. Chapter 27 of Uniting Together and Soldering Windows These things being thus arranged, take pure tin and mix it with a fifth part of lead, and cast in the above-mentioned iron or wood as many rods as you wish with which you will solder your work. Have also forty nails, a finger in length, which are at one end fine and round, at the other square, and quite curved back, so that an opening may appear in the middle. Then take the painted and burnt glass and place it in its order upon the other part of the table where there is no drawing. After that, take the head of any one figure and surrounding it with lead, relay it carefully in its place and fasten round it three nails with a hammer proper for this work, joining to it the chest and arms and the remaining draperies, and whatever part you would solder, fasten outside with nails that it may not be moved from its place. Then have a soldering iron which is long and slender, but at the end thick and round, and at the end of this round part diminishing and small, filed and tinned over. This is placed in the fire. In the meantime, take the tin rods which you have cast, and anoint them over on both sides with wax, and rasping lead over the surface in all places which are to be soldered. Taking the hot iron, apply the tin to it in whatever place two pieces of lead meet, and you anoint with the iron until they adhere to each other. The figures being set up, you will arrange the grounds in the same manner, and of whatever color you wish, and so, piecemeal, you compose your window. The window being finished and soldered on one side, turned upon the other you will make it firm everywhere in the same manner, by rasping and soldering. Chapter 29 of Plain Windows If, however, you wish to construct plain windows, First mark the measure of the length and breadth upon the wooden table, then draw the flourishes or other things which may please you, and composing them of decided colors,
divide the glass and fit it together with the rizzle iron, and using the nails, enclose it with lead and solder on both sides. Place wood around it, fastened with nails, and establish it where you wish. So, there's your semi-complete guide to making your own authentically medieval stained glass windows, with or without figures. I said I was going to include a text in praise of Notre Dame. Um, this will not be a medieval text, but it does feel like it comes from the past. Uh, well, and it does. It comes from 1921, which is practically yesterday in comparison to most of our texts, but this book has a certain distinct feel of its age. This book, from which we'll hear an excerpt, is How France Built Her Cathedrals by Elizabeth Boyle O'Reilly. She is a fascinating subject herself, uh, an author and scholar who became a nurse and war correspondent in Europe during the Great War, and doubtless she saw the destruction of many medieval churches and other buildings in the wastelands made by the front lines, and the war even sneaks into her portrait of Notre Dame. But before I get sidetracked by O'Reilly's life, let's first give the cathedral its due via her quite stirring and knowledgeable description of it. Despite the enlargement of the upper windows and the changes made to give more light to the tribunes, none can deny that, in gloomy weather, Notre Dame can be somber and even cavernous. Yet, who of its devotees would have it different? Supreme Cathedral it is for that supremest of hymns, the Dies Irae, sound and sense and vision welded. exchange its severe majesty for an expanse of brilliant glass, save Suget's glass, is unthinkable. In Notre Dame, you comprehend the spectacular repentances of the Middle Ages. Here, when pestilence stalked the city or the enemy was at the gate, have echoed the miserere and the libera nos domine. There is an individuality in the Cathedral of Paris that overrides every criticism. Perpetually does the worshipper find in it new aspects, in the dim, low aisles full of mystery, in the gleam of transept windows as seen through the tribune arches while one listens, perhaps, to a Lenten friar preacher discoursing of sin, justice, and the judgment to come, here on the very spot where Dominic himself taught the same sobering lessons, here where six hundred years later his son, Lacordaire, held the manhood of Paris spellbound. Or again, one gazes down the length of the church with its incomparable perspective, while around one rise the voices of strong men fresh from the Battle of Verdun, 
fresh from their firm, they shall not pass, and their magnificat of thanksgiving to Notre Dame swells in a volume of sound like the eternal sea. The crusaders of St. Louis' time prayed, too, for strength in Notre Dame of Paris. The curve of the sanctuary, as seen from the west end of the nave, is one of the splendors of the monument, and no chevet ever built surpassed it. The cause of the magic is practical, a structural problem solved, as is the case with the best aspects of Gothic art. At that eastern curve, extra piers were inserted between the double aisles in order to obviate the difficulty of vaulting such irregular trapeze-shaped sections. The enthusiast maintains that the exterior of Notre Dame surpasses that of all other cathedrals. Certainly better transept facades were never made, nor was apse more romantic than that of the chief church of Paris, as it rises in three grandiose steps with flying buttresses of wide span, leaping with an audacity that fairly catches the breath. And again, the success is a case of sound science solving a problem. The west facade is an accepted classic, an architectural glory of France, irreproachable. Once the intelligence has grasped its preeminence, allegiance to it will never waver. The frontispieces of Rennes and of Rouen are richer and may appeal more to the imagination. It is possible that the severe dignity of Paris may even chill at first. But what clarity of plan! Four strong buttresses accentuate the big square parallelogram. Excessive ornamentation has been avoided in order that the whole may stand forth. Lest the two towers might appear to rise abruptly from the massive, some master hand made there the graceful open colonnade. The façade of Notre Dame is true to its epoch in its appeal to the intellect rather than to the emotions. And here I'll skip ahead a bit to O'Reilly's brief look at the stained glass of the cathedral to bring us back to Theophilus. The present stained glass in Notre Dame is modern, save for the north, south, and west rose windows, the trilogy of light usually found in big cathedrals. The roses of the transept belong to the Paris school, which led in the art of glassmaking during the second half of the 13th century. So large were the spaces then to be filled that the scrupulous patience of the Saint-Denis craftsmen was no longer possible. Backgrounds had to be made quickly by bold, simple trellis designs, and as the most frequent background was a red trellis on a blue field, and the juxtaposition of red and blue makes violet, in too many of the windows of that period prevails a melancholy purplish hue. Originally, the choir of Notre Dame boasted some glass given by Abbot Suget himself to the preceding Romanesque cathedral. In the 18th century, those overconfident Jean de Gou, the cathedral canons, whose taste admitted only the neoclassic, substituted uncolored glass for the ancient windows. They say that when the workmen were removing Suget's priceless glass, they were dumbfounded by its deep, ineffable blue. Many a treasure of Notre Dame was destroyed by the Revolution, and the church itself was put up for sale and escaped demolition by merest chance. It served as Temple of Reason, as Warehouse, as Fate Hall. Again, during the Commune in 1871, for the purpose of destroying it, chairs were piled high in the choir and set on fire, but brave men broke in the doors and extinguished the flames. Early in the World War, in 1914, a German airship dropped a bomb on Notre Dame, which pierced the roof of the transept's northern arm. 
sure if everyone will agree with O'Reilly's claims about the aesthetics of the cathedral being intellectual rather than emotional, but she does go on to make her case for the connection between Gothic architecture and scholasticism and to extol Aquinas' unification of faith with reason. I mentioned Elizabeth Boyle O'Reilly being a fascinating person herself, um, and I kind of hate to do this, and I don't want it to come across as crass self-promotion in the middle of an episode where I'm trying to be especially mindful of tone, but uh, I'm going to have to save the discussion of O'Reilly for a Patreon appendix episode. Uh, That's not to hold it for ransom or anything. It is also a matter of just the time I have available this episode. But I will also just say that many should be jealous of our patrons who are going to get to hear this story which includes a primary source of O'Reilly in her own words, and which has the title, How Elizabeth Boyle O'Reilly Escaped a Madhouse. I will just drop the detail here that it was during her incarceration in this insane asylum that she wrote much of How France Built Her Cathedrals, in that short period between her returning from the war and the publication of the book in 1921. So patrons, Look for that soon in your patron feed. Uh, I'm going to start working on it as soon as this episode is out, but it might not be done until after Easter. We're not going to have a mystery word or riddle for this somewhat short-notice episode, uh, so I'll instead conclude with one final text, moving us still closer to the present day, though only up to 1990. This is a bit from one of my absolute favorite books, one which is much underappreciated in its author's canon. It's from Last Chance to See by Douglas Adams, uh, who is better known for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. This book is actually a companion piece to a documentary radio series he did with conservationist Mark Kawardin, in which they went around the world trying to see some of the most endangered species on the planet. A few years ago, there was a sort of follow-up TV series with Stephen Fry filling the shoes of the late departed Douglas Adams, uh, and that is something you may have seen. Uh, I haven't actually gotten around to seeing it yet. Uh, the idea of continuations of Adams' work still kind of gets me choked up. Uh, anyway, this passage from the book isn't about endangered species, but it is about endangered architecture. So here's Douglas Adams in China, where they were looking for the Baiji, the Yangtze River dolphin, which has indeed, in the years since, gone extinct. Uh, but to the architecture... This is a bit of a recording of Adams himself reading the text uh, from a long, out-of-print CD-ROM version of the book, uh, which is also one of my most treasured possessions. 
we put on our sunglasses and cameras and went and spent the day looking at the Great Wall at Badaling, an hour or so outside Beijing. It looked to be remarkably freshly built for such an ancient monument, and probably the parts we saw had been. I remembered once in Japan having been to see the Gold Pavilion Temple in Kyoto and being mildly surprised at quite how well it had weathered the passage of time since it was first built in the 14th century. I was told it hadn't weathered well at all and had in fact been burnt to the ground twice in this century. So it isn't the original building, I had asked my Japanese guide. But yes, of course it is, he insisted, rather surprised at my question. But it's been burnt down, I said. Yes. Twice. Oh, many times. And rebuilt? Of course, said my guide. It is an important and historic building. With completely new materials, I protested. But of course it was burnt down. So how can it be the same building, I asked. Well, it is always the same building. I had to admit to myself that this was in fact a perfectly rational point of view, it merely started from an unexpected premise. The idea of the building, the intention of it, its design, are all immutable and are the essence of the building. The intention of the original builders is what survives. The wood of which the design is constructed decays and is replaced when necessary. To be overly concerned with the original materials, which are merely sentimental souvenirs of the past, is to fail to see the living building itself. I couldn't feel entirely comfortable with this view because it fought against my basic Western assumptions, but I had to see the point. I don't know whether this principle lies beneath the rebuilding of the Great Wall because I couldn't find anybody who understood the question. The rebuilt section was swarming with tourists and Coca-Cola booths and shops where you can buy Great Wall t-shirts and electric pandas, and this may have had something to do with it. So that is one of the philosophical sentiments we've seen versions of emerging in the wake of the fire. And I'm with Adams that this is a mindset that deserves our consideration, that merits some pondering. Though I will just offer in some defense of Western sentimentality that while the holistic view has some very strong points, uh, it could also be taken as analogous with the idea that, say, the fates of individual employees don't really matter so long as the company as an idea continues. So there is also something to be said for being concerned about the distinctive actuality of the components rather than just the abstract platonic form of the thing, whatever it is. And maybe medievalists are especially drawn to this latter philosophy, especially these days. I mean, even with our texts, we've become increasingly interested in all the individual variations of a given text that exist across all its manuscript copies. And I think we look askance now at the old idea of finding or constructing a single master-er text that we all agree to take as the text going forward. But... As in many things, uh, as in the color mixing that Theophilus described earlier, a balance or a mean between these two approaches is probably the most productive way forward. And hopefully we will find that balance as we move on. I see in the news that debate is already beginning to brew just over the timeline for rebuilding and what will qualify as doing it right. Um, but we'll stop there before we end on too sour of a note. 
The story is already getting displaced from the mainstream news headlines, but I'm sure many of us will be following it going forward over the next weeks, months, and even years. Again, let's hope that we don't discover anything more dire about the structural soundness of the towers and the remaining vaults, and that we don't have to add much more to the current register of damage. If you haven't heard our Crowland Abbey Fire episode, you might dig back to the very start of this show's back catalog and check it out. It was episode 5. It does speak with a renewed immediacy this week, I think. As usual, you can talk with me on Twitter at MDTPodcast or by sending email to patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And at that website, you can also get more information about the sources for this and every episode. You can also support us on Patreon and hear the startling tale of Elizabeth Boyle O'Reilly, along with lots of other bonus content. Uh, a dollar a month is all it takes, and you can do that at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. Until next time, remember, qui vivra verra, and thanks for listening.